0: at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Yeah, so I, I was in... I must have been in second grade. my family moved homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're at a new school. Um, no kids with turbans had, had ever gone to this school before. Nobody had ever seen anyone who looked like me. Wow. And so ask asked my teacher to use the bathroom. So I, I remember walking to the bathroom... Um, getting to the boys' bathroom door, uh, and there were a couple of fifth-grade kids standing outside who I didn't know, um, but they kind of laughed and pushed me and said, you have long long hair under that thing, talking about my turban, mm-hmm. you have long hair under that thing, so why don't you use the girls' bathroom? And they pushed me towards the girls' bathroom, like a couple of them, um, and, they, and then they said, you know, you can come use the boys' bathroom when your hair is short and you look like one of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember... Um, actually that night I, like I, I hadn't really, I I don't remember feeling this way before, but that night I actually, uh, snuck a pair of scissors under my pillow, planning to cut my hair, which, you know, in our, in our religious tradition, it's like, it's not acceptable. And so that super traumatic for me as a kid, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the first. That's my,
1: actually one of my very first memories as, as a kid. Simran Jeet Singh was maybe seven or eight when this happened and hasn't really thought about it since. He didn't actually get around to cutting his hair because he was waiting for his parents to fall asleep, and he accidentally passed out first. That's how young he was. But that memory still shaped the kind of man that he would become. Simran is a scholar of religion and has become a kind of cool-headed, self-made ambassador for the Sikh community. But he didn't start there. I'm Eamon Ismail, and you're listening to Man Up. On this show every week, we tell honest stories about our lives and investigate where we get our ideas about what it means to be a man. So, I don't usually wear traditional garb, but a few weeks ago was Eid, the Muslim holiday, and this year I was trying to get back to my roots. So I wore a galabeya, as we call it in Egypt, It's this big, white ankle-length garment with long sleeves that looks Middle Eastern and very baller. My family and I went to the zoo that day, and the funny looks began almost right away. I noticed a difference in how people saw me. At first, surprise, then suspicion, then caution after they noticed me doing something disarming like laughing or smiling. When I was a kid, I would never have done that. I didn't want people to see me any different than they already did. So I tried to blend in. Simren didn't really have that choice though. He's sick, and that means he couldn't really hide. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky?
0: In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do
1: I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting.
0: Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void rep prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: It was one of my pet peeves as a kid, because I had long hair. I have three brothers. All four of us have relatively feminine features. So before the beard and mustache came in, like everyone always confused us for girls. Um, So it was a pet peeve for sure, but only because I thought people weren't really understanding or weren't really seeing me in that way.
1: They were instructing you on like what a man was supposed to look like and how a man was supposed to behave?
0: I don't know if it necessarily enforced an idea of what it meant to look, what it meant to look like as a man, but it definitely gave me this feeling that what I, was, what I was doing, the way that I looked, the way that I lived, didn't fit into what people expected of me. Mm. And that either I could continue my way or I could move into somebody else's, but I couldn't do both.
1: In San Antonio, Texas, Simran and his three brothers stood out. They all wore turbans. A lot of his neighborhood had never seen one before except on the news. Never mind that he was sick, not Muslim. He was a brown kid with an unfamiliar religion, and they expected him to prove their ideas wrong. That could be a lot of responsibility, especially on kids still insecure about the way that they look. So I I always had this urge to compensate for the way that I looked. I would smile more and smile at people at a distance who I thought were visibly uncomfortable by who I was and the way that I presented myself. So I, I always tried to... Uh, put on this like happy face and try to be like the friendly neighborhood Muslim guy. Did you do anything like that when you were growing up?
0: I definitely, so so culturally in Texas, like in San Antonio at least, Mm -hmm. if you don't say hi to everyone, you pass by on the street, you're being rude. And so like I always said (laughs) hi to everyone, always smiled, but everyone did. So it wasn't like particular to me. I didn't think of it as like a, I need to, Present myself as a model minority or something like that. <laughs>
1: Southern hospitality.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there, there are things that that I am thoughtful about, right? Mm-hmm. So, so think about this coming from the perspective of someone like myself. You, you walk through airport security. Everyone's already like s- skeptical of you. Yeah. Then you go through airport security and you get pulled aside, oh, man. and for a secondary screening, right? Like a standard racial profiling. Practice, Mm -hmm. and this is like part of the policy,
1: right? So it's every single time. Yeah, sometimes you get brought to the Muhammad room. (laughs) I call it that because you're sitting there waiting for your name to be called, and it's just Muhammad, Muhammad. That's hilarious, Muhammad. Just over and over.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Then everyone's looking at you, right? And they're like, Mm -hmm. "Oh, if those guys are scared of, if if the government's just scared of these guys, then I should probably be worried about them too." Yeah. Then you get to the gate and everyone's like oh damn that guy's on my flight I don't want to sit next to him then you get on the airplane and everyone's like oh shit like this is real Um, and so I'm thoughtful about that and like when I'm when I'm with my girls now, I find it's totally different, right? Like they're mm. two little babies, and people are like, "Oh, that guy might be a real human," right? But oh. but if I'm not, <laughs> 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 but, but yeah. when I'm not with my girls, like sometimes I'm thoughtful now about like, should I speak in Punjabi or English? What if I'm on the phone, yeah. or should I like hear something? Like if I have my headphones in, people like treat me very differently than if I don't, because if I have my headphones in, they're like, "Oh, that guy's probably a modern, normal person." Like they hear that I don't have an accent, they're less worried. But then again, I, I find that all those things to be a compromise for myself because I'm like, why am I, yeah. changing who I am to make these people feel comfortable? Like they should be accepting me for who I am. So it's yeah, it's it's one of those things where no matter what I do, I'm like, man, I wish I didn't have to do this. I think that's <laughs> I think that's the yeah, result. It's, it's taxing and it's <laughs> one of those
1: things that you have to consider everywhere you go. It's kind of interesting. I always tell people when they ask me, when did you become so religious? People who knew me when I was younger, it's. It's when I started becoming so exposed to Islamophobes and where I felt like I needed to be confident in what I was saying in order to compensate for my um for my just being different. I needed to stand strong and resolute like you're describing. I think back to those moments, those like sparse moments of of being reminded that you were different, uh just by the way that people treat you as unexpected. And it takes me some time to remember them, especially as they happen. I don't necessarily think oh, um, this oh, this is an Islamophobic thing or oh, this is kind of racist or oh, it just kind of happens and then afterwards, like, wait, was was that racist?
0: Yeah, my brothers and I had this <laughs> really funny conversation recently. I mean, funny but sad too. Uh, we went to a public high school just outside of San Antonio and one of my brothers said, hey, do do y- am I remembering this wrong? Do you remember Confederate flags on the backs of the pickup trucks at our school? And all of us sort of like paused for a second. We were like, yeah. Like, there, <laughs> there were a lot of those and like it didn't strike us as weird when we were kids but yeah. like, it's totally weird. I mean, like, a lot of my childhood I see as normal. Like, my brothers and I saw ourselves as normal. We didn't really think too much about it. And then, like, things would come up, right? Like, we – I remember I, this was also in elementary school. We go to a roller skating rink, and the manager kicked us out because of their headwear policy, right? Like, no turbans here. And we're kids, so, That's like, we unfair. don't know. We're yeah. upset, and it doesn't seem right. Yeah. Um, so, like, those kinds of things happen, and they form a, an impression on you. But it's not like that moment – was so seared into my consciousness that like everywhere I went, I was looking for yeah. some sort of bigotry or discrimination or something. So it was like, it's this funny existence where like you only know what's normal to you. Marginalization in general, like that just it weighs on you and it really can take a toll over time. But one of the things that I draw from my tradition as a Sikh is this idea of uh, what we call like always, always finding optimism and everything and I think the power of that really, right, like it, it, is, it is sort of somewhat forced. There's bad stuff happening all the time and painful stuff that you have to deal with. But being able to find hope doesn't just mean that you're diluting yourself into some false reality. Mm-hmm. It, it also means that you are then giving yourself a direction to go and, and shaping yourself as a person, right? Like mm-hmm. what kind of person do you want to be and how do you, how do you grow into it despite Despite all the nastiness that's out there, and I think that that to me has been the power of that idea.
1: Wow, um, that's amazing. <laughs> how does how that influenced your your masculinity? Do you think it has?
0: L- let me say this: like my my experiences as a sick man have have really pushed me to lean into the idea of Jardikalah, and and I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, in in our tradition, it's it's theologically clear, ideologically clear, like every Sikh, will accept that our tradition teaches men and women are equal. But there, there are a couple of ways in which that doesn't play out in reality, right? Like just like any ideology. Right. And, and one of the ways is the norm has become that Sikh men are more visibly identifiable. Sikh men wear the turban. Women have the option to, but don't as commonly. And then because of our facial hair as well, like we really stick out as men. And, and you know, the kind of things that you and I have been alluding to, like this appearance of having brown skin, facial hair, turban, like mm-hmm. it just puts us into this category, not just being visible, but looking like who most Americans perceive to be the enemy. Yeah. And so, so it's been this like weird thing about sick masculinity, meaning that we then become targets in our day-to-day lives and then have to figure out how to negotiate that. And for some people, it's um, it's not worth it, right? And, and they say, you know, I'd, I'd rather not wear a turban and not have a beard. Mm-hmm. And for me, the way that I've tried to manage this issue has been to figure out what values, this idea of Jada Beekle was talking about, through this through this lens of optimism, what values can I lean into from my tradition that can then help me navigate the sort of hate and bigotry that, that I encounter and that our community deals
1: with? When I think about my my personal masculinity and how I handle insults, I usually feel like I want justice. Rarely do I ever act on that feeling. Yeah but I want to I want to feel satisfied knowing that the person who crossed the line and hurt me, was hurt themselves not physically but like maybe verbally or i don't know i feel a bit emasculated by it yeah i feel as though i wasn't able to to protect myself from it and i worry that that might happen a lot for for people who are the victim of verbal abuse and i worry that that might have an impact on um some kids masculinity
0: yeah so so, my main office is at n y u and uh one of my favorite ways of commuting home is is running uh, running along the river and back to my apartment and uh and I'm running and and I have my headphones in, and I hear this guy shouting at me, and he's yelling racial slurs like he's calling me osama and typically when somebody yells at me, I just sort of ignore it and especially if I'm working out, like I'd rather just keep running, yeah. but I turn back and I see he's a young kid, probably like 18, 20. Wow. If, if I was to just sort of see this from the lens of victimization, I would just sort of see it as, oh, this guy's another bigot, he hates me because of how I look, like, my life sucks, <laughs> <laughs> right? Which is like, which is a very common and understandable way of responding to this stuff when you're just dealing with toxicity all the time. Yeah. But because of this idea of looking for the silver lining or looking for hope, um, I decided to go talk to them wow. and, um, and it was a good conversation. Like I, I talked to him about why I thought it was messed up. And really, I think, um, what he said to me at the end of it, he said, I, you know, I was just joking. I didn't mean it. Me and my friends just thought it was funny. And I, you know, I think just like we see with young people and other people, like you try to be funny and you say things that are, that cross the line sometimes. And so, um, I think what, out of that situation and not every situation ends up like this right but what comes out of that is then you have three or four kids who are there together and they walk away being like all right i understand why that was messed up and i don't want to do that again yeah so yeah i mean that's that was a that's probably my my best story (laughs) my best outcome so that's why i shared that one so like those in in those Mm -hmm. situations they're not personal at all like they're not about me like these people are mad at someone else, they have no idea who I am, they don't know anything about me. And so it's it's actually quite easy, once you figure out how to deal with something like that, uh, to not take it personally, and therefore not feel emasculated, right? Like, this is not my problem, this is their problem. Mm-hmm. And it's my problem in the sense that I recognize that this sort of mentality could lead to harm or violence for others, and that's, and that's where I wanna step in and really get into the education piece. But in those situations I don't I don't actually feel emasculated.
1: Last year I was on Park Avenue. I was waiting for I'd like sent some camera equipment to get repaired. The guy said come at a certain time and it wasn't ready, so I was like waiting outside, kinda hanging out. And this guy who was drunk smelled terrible, had like a had to be like some kind of dark liquor on his breath. And he said, Hey, if if any of your cousins back home ever wanna blow up the city I'm going to put a gun to your head. And he put his finger on my forehead. And he's like, I'm going to blow your brains out. Uh, And (laughs) I was thinking in my head, like, this motherfucker. Like, this is crazy. I was, like, about to do something. But just the fact that it happened, I was still, I was kind of silent for a second. and, And I was sort of, like, drinking all that in. And I looked him right in the eye, and I was like, what? Like I I couldn't I yeah, like I, yeah, I, I don't yeah, have yeah, any exactly, words. Yeah. And his friend came from behind him who was like also drunk. They might have been like drinking at a happy hour or whatever. Pulled just go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And they kinda like both, you know, disappeared into the the crowd of New York City and that was that. And I was left humiliated. I was left thinking so poorly of myself. Like it it kinda almost didn't it didn't have me thinking about politics or implications at that point. It just kinda felt like Yo, this is my city. I was born like three miles from here, just in Jersey City, and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh man, like this sucks." Like I'm, I felt sh- I felt shittier. I felt like shittier. Yeah,
0: I mean, I mean, let me let me just first let you know that I'm with you. Like I've been in that same spot, like over and over again. So, so that story I told about the kid, who I talked to while running and like walked away with a good outcome. What I didn't tell you was less than a week before that, a woman, like, right outside my home, two blocks from where I live, was yelling racist stuff at me. And I was walking down the street. And I've been dealing with this stuff my whole life, right? So, like, I should have known what to say, but I had no idea. Like, I froze. I totally froze. And I felt that same sort of humiliation. Like, I was totally ashamed of myself. Like, so much so that I, like, couldn't sleep that night. And then I ended up posting on Facebook and Twitter. Like, I... I just put a message out there being like, hey, this happened. What do you think I should have done? Mm-hmm. And it was really like I i spent the night thinking to myself what I wished I would have done, and I couldn't come up with what I—what the right answer was. Like we're put in this position constantly where we have to somehow <laughs> deal deal with someone's anger and hatred for something that has nothing to do with us, mm-hmm. but it's... Yeah. And and so how do you how do you deal with that? I don't don't know.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like an impossible, impossible situation. Like you said, lose, lose. Part of
0: it is just preparing ourselves, right? Like knowing what kinds of situations we might end up in and and then being ready and then I mean that that to me is the opposite of emasculating right like that to me was really empowering to to be able to have this conversation be like yeah I I can I can turn this lose-lose situation into a win because I have that agency to do so
1: as a journalist I have these kinds of conversations all the time some of you listening right now might know me from my video series who's afraid of Eamon Ismail it let me have those conversations on my terms and he's right it was really empowering but you can't expect anyone and everyone to want to. But Simran has chosen to embrace this mantle. It's who he is.
0: The the thing about being sick is that I make a conscious decision every day to look the way that I do, and that's been true since childhood. And and what's I think what I've taken away from that, and what's what in retrospect I think has been um, transformative for me is when you learn to embrace being different right rejecting social norms consciously and intentionally when you can do that it's a lot easier to let go of some of what otherwise could be quite intoxicating social expectations Mm. so i think from my own experience being able to just be like i'm different screw the rules Uh, it made it a lot easier for me to not give in to some of what I think would be otherwise really negative ways of dealing with the hate that came my way, which would be like being overly defensive or aggressive or violent or, you know, any of those things. Um, You know, I would say that so much of what I learned through my experiences and the way in which I've come to embody my identity uh, is very feminine in that sense, right? Like I talk about love all the time and I'm like a brown skin bearded turban man who like people probably aren't expecting to talk about love but that that for me has been only possible because i don't really care what people think right and i mean i do like i care what people think but i but i don't actually feel like i need to live into a certain model of what it means to be a certain way within this world right like it's, it's easy for me to reject it. And I think it's only easy for me to reject it because I've never really lived that way before I've chosen. It's been a conscious decision to be different. And I think that, yeah, that's, that's been the big thing. And that for me has been, you know, realizing the power of that experience, um, and the power of what that can do has then become the impetus for my idea of how this world can change, um, and so it's not. I, I wouldn't say that it's an exclusively sick message or particular to my sick experience. I think that these are universal takeaways that can come through all sorts of case studies, communities, experiences, people, and that's and that's sort of how I've thought about education. Like everything I do, whether it's you know writing columns in articles or showing up on TV or being in the classroom or uh, working on civil rights cases, like it's all, it all goes back to that core piece of education. Like how do we bring these values to bear in our society, which needs them so badly? I think that's, that's to me is, is the big question of our time.
1: I've dealt with religious and racial harassment for what feels like my entire life. When it happens, I brush it off and try not to think about it. I don't want to think that I can't handle it, so most times, I don't even try to. But now, I think that that approach might stop me from feeling and healing, and I end up carrying it around with me like grief. In a lot of ways, it shaped the man that I am today. Because I've never digested what I've gone through, discussing it with someone who has, like Simranjit Singh, felt really good. By verbalizing it, it became real. He doesn't take it personal, and I'm still learning to handle it that way. Instead of internalizing it, Simran is showing me how to find the optimism and some semblance of control. And that feels like a good place to start. Man Up is hosted and written by me, Amin Ismail. Our producers are Cameron Drews and Danielle Hewitt. Our executive producers are Jeffrey Bloomer and Loan Liu. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. June Thomas is the Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcasts, and TJ Raphael is the Senior Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. You can email us at manup at slate.com and tell us what you think of the show and offer suggestions. Is there a conversation you think we should be having? Let us know, and please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll be back next week with more Man Up.